Health begins to fail. Finances begin to sprout wings and fly away at the gas pump. We go through difficult times. We have to be reminded that the greatest thing that we possess is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To be saved is wonderful. To know that you are saved is even more wonderful. The greatest day of your life is the day when you became a child of God. Now in chapter 4, Paul spends the bulk of the chapter telling us what God did for Abraham. It's Abraham this and Abraham that over and over. But in verse 23, we read these beautiful words. Listen to them. The words it was credited to him, to Abraham, were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now that's good news. It's good news because the blessing that Abraham received is for all who will call upon Jesus to save them without distinction of nationality, without regard for their sinfulness or personal baggage or anything else. If you are hungry for living bread, if you are thirsty for living water, if you want to be cleansed from sin, you can be. You can be. He will cleanse you. He will wash you. He'll make you clean. He will justify you. He'll save you. He'll save you. But on what merits can we be called righteous? On what merits? How can that take place? How can that come to be? We can be called righteous by God because of Romans 4.25. Look at the reading. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the merits. We can be declared righteous. We can enter into heaven. We can know we're saved. We can have everlasting life because of what Jesus has done for us. Now let's linger over these phrases for a little bit. Notice the first phrase, delivered to death. Delivered to death. Delivered by whom? Who is it that delivered Jesus over to death? It was none other than God the Father. It was by God's intention, by God's design, and according to His eternal purpose, that God delivered Jesus over to death. God had to do it because only God had the power, only God had the authority to deliver Jesus over to death, delivered over to death. One commentator says this, this word delivered is used commonly of those who are surrendered or delivered into the hands of enemies or adversaries. It means that Jesus was surrendered or given up to his enemies by those who should have been his protectors. delivered over to death. God the Father giving up His own Son to the cross to die for a purpose. Delivered up by the Father. Delivered over to death. Why? Why would God the Father, who as a father would normally shield and protect His Son, why would God deliver his only begotten son over to death. 
Notice the next phrase. For our sins. For our sins. God delivered Jesus over to die for our sins. Because of your sins. Your sins. Now we talk about sin like sin like it's a nebulous thing. Like they. You know what they say. You know how they are. We, think about, we talk about sin in a generic, big, big umbrella term sometimes. But we have to remember that we have actual sins that you and I have committed. I don't know all the sins that I've committed, but i got a pretty good handle on, on them. I, I kind of know, in general, the sins I've committed. And you know what sins you've committed, too. And so does God. And the only way that you could be reconciled to God is if your sins are paid for. And they have to be paid for. Sins have to be paid for. There's no way around it. Because of your sins. Because you are a liar. Because you are a thief. Because you are a blaspheming idolater. Because you are a murderer in heart and a sexmonger. Because of you and your sins, the holy, sinless Son of God had to die. He had to die. It was required that He die so that your sins could be atoned for. There was no other way. Delivered to death for our sins. Because this has to take place because God is good. Sometimes we think there's this, if you, if you talk to many atheists, and now you hear people talk about deconstructing from Christianity, those who were Christians who leave Christianity. In, in, my, in my conversations with atheists, and then in listening to atheists talk about becoming an atheist, the main, their main gripe with God is if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? If God is good, why is there human suffering? This is, this is where it all comes down to. Because we Christians, we talk about how good God is, don't we? How loving God is, how merciful God is. And then an atheist says, well, if your God is so sweet and kind and loving and has all power, why is the world a wreck? Why are the Russians invading Ukraine? Why are they bombing hospitals? Why are they shooting missiles into subdivisions? Why are they doing that? If God is good, if he has all power, if he can do anything, why is he letting this happen? Why is he letting injustices take place all around the world? Where in Nigeria, those, those Boko Haram Islamic rebels would go into villages and kidnap all the girls from these villages and take them away hostage and make them into sex slaves. Why is child trafficking taking place in our country? If God is so good and he has all power, what's with all the bad stuff he lets go on in his world? Christopher Hitchens, he would say, if that's God, then he's the worst thing ever. Why? The reason the world is the way it is is because of sin. And it's God's judgment for sin. Sin has to be suffered for. Sin. All of the heartaches and hardships of life are all a result of sin. It's all a result of sin. If you look at the Revelation at the end of it, it says there will, there's no tears in heaven. And then there's this little reading right after that that says all tears are wiped away. And there's a small reading and it lists a whole bunch of things that will never be allowed to enter into heaven because all of those things are what cause suffering and tears and sorrow. They're all kept out of heaven. Sin cannot go unpunished. God punishes sin. He does it now in this world, and He does it 
in the world to come too. Because God is good, sin has to be punished. And God does punish sin. God has punished sinful nations and sinful individuals. We know that to be true just from reading Scripture. We know there is consequences to actions in Scripture. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel? Where he goes out and looks at all the great things he's built in the city of Babylon. He looks around and he says, you know, this is, look what I've done. Oh, the whole world's afraid of me. I'm the, I'm the high potentate of all these things. And then he has a dream. And the dream is that he'll eat grass and grow feathers. And live in the fields for years. To be humbled before God. To be judged. God judges sin. God is going to eventually judge all sinners. We don't often think about it, but we have to remember that when people die without Christ, they go to hell. They go to the eternal torment of the lake of fire, and that is the destination of everybody who is a sinner, and that's their just punishment for sin. God is going to punish sin. Our sins, they condemn us. We are marked for judgment because sin must be punished. My dad used to say it like this, that the wheels of justice grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. Sin must be judged. But God in his love for sinful man has sent a man into the world, a perfect man, to go to Calvary And to bear the collective guilt of all who would believe on him and die on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus has come into the world. He is the scapegoat. He's the sin bearer. He's the atoning lamb. He died on the cross to pay for sins because sins have to be paid for. The death of Christ was a full and complete death. If you read through the gospel accounts, you'll see that Jesus was judged. He was countered with the transgressors. He was beaten with a Roman whip. His body was ripped all over with deep gashes, slapped in the face. A crown of thorns was smashed onto his head. He was stripped naked. Nails were, real nails were driven through his hands and feet, attaching him to a wooden cross. And that cross was erected, and for hours he's suffering on the cross. He must have been in shock. He must have endured great trauma to his body. And there on the cross, where he is atoning for sins, the atonement, all the physical suffering he's going through for sin, is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Because on the cross, the Bible says that Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He, he makes it, it's, it, it's an interesting change of phrase, a change of reference. All through the Gospels, he talks about his father, his father, his father, his father. But on the cross, when it's the object of judgment, when he's being crushed and bruised by the father's judgment, he says, my God, the distance is there. 
You know how kids, we call, you know, my kids call me dad, right? And they don't call me daddy. It's always dad. Because you know what John Wayne said about daddy? If you ever call me daddy again, I'll finish this fight. (laughs) That's from Big Jake, if you haven't seen it. You know, use your extra hour of daylight tomorrow night and watch. Don't call me daddy. But you know what? My kids, if they called me Terry, I'd be like, it would blow blow my mind. That's distance. Nobody else calls me dad. When I got married to Valerie, um, her mom and dad, and they brought me into family. You know, sometimes, I mean, how many of you call your in-laws dad or mom? Anybody like that? So when I, when, when I got married to Valerie, they, they, they didn't want to do that because they didn't want to claim me as their son. <laughs> Can you believe that? They didn't want to have me. <laughs> but they told me I could call them in the familiar. Ron and Carolyn. Ron and Carolyn. And everybody around would say Mr. Courtney or Miss Courtney, but I could call them Ron and Carolyn because I was a part of the family. And on the cross, Jesus has been referring to his father as father, 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 over and over. But on the cross, he says, my God, and it's a, it's a change. A change in, how his, in his perspective of God. On the cross. In this mind-blowing moment on the cross, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? The son who shared in the single divine essence that is God felt abandoned by his father. He felt deserted, abandoned, and left behind. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One preacher says this about the abandonment of Christ on the cross. Here's what he says. As Jesus died, all our sins were placed on him, and he became the final and complete sacrifice for our sins. And in that moment, he was banished from the presence of God, For sin cannot exist in God's presence. His loud cry speaks of this truth. That on the cross, Jesus endured the separation from God that you and I deserve. He paid the full price for sin. The physical suffering was one aspect of it. And then on the cross, he's abandoned. I gave a a talk similar to this and said almost the same thing I just said to you. And after service, a guy came up to me and he said, are you saying that Jesus ceased to be God on the cross? That there was a dissolution of the hypostatic union? And I said, no, I don't think so. But something massive takes place here. Something cataclysmic. In the mystery of God, the Son says, where are you? And this is taking place because Jesus is paying the full price for sin. The Bible says in Matthew 27, 46, that Jesus cried with a loud voice. The Greek words here are interesting. The Greek words are megaphone. (laughs) Loud voice. A big voice. Where are you? Jesus shrieks with agony over the separation that he feels. And that is exactly what people who are in hell today are doing. They are feeling the intense separation between them and God. They're crying out very loud 
because they are experiencing the horror of complete separation from God. Just as Jesus did on behalf of those for whom he died. Jesus suffered the full and complete penalty for sin. Listen to Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to crush Jesus, and to cause him to suffer. Though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, after the suffering of his soul, he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he, Jesus, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus. Now, in the, in the authorized version, it, it's a little bit more striking in Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Because in the NIV, it says that he poured out his life. In the, in the authorized version, it says he has made his soul an offering for sin. Jesus shedding his blood, giving his body to be broken, enduring the separation, and giving up to God's justice his own soul, paying the full price, the full price. Of course, we know on the cross, Jesus finally died. He dismissed his spirit and dies. And his soul goes into the subterranean realms There's a big debate about where where his soul goes. Does his soul go to paradise? Does his soul go to Sheol, to the the burning side of Sheol? Or does it stay in the the paradise side of Sheol? I'm going to tell you something. I don't know where he wound up, where his soul was at exactly. But I know this. He paid the full price for sin. He paid the full price. There were no discounts. There were no rebates. He paid the full and complete price for sin. Whatever that was, whatever it is, Jesus paid the full and complete price for sins. What motivates this payment? What motivated this kind of atonement? The love of God. God for sinners. Romans 5, 6 says that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 7 says that for scarcely, for a righteous man, will one die. Romans 5, 8 says, but God commended, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is Proven and shown through his offering of his son on the cross. Jesus was delivered to death. He dies, but he didn't stay dead. Amen. He's risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. He was raised to life for our justification. John Murray says, the resurrection was proof that the Father's love found full satisfaction in the redeeming work of Christ. Jesus Christ did not stay dead. Listen again to Isaiah 53, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul. This is prophetic now, so it's talking about something in the future. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. The Father will. 
He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. This is all prophetic of a resurrection. How can a dead man share in a kingdom? How can a dead man share in prosperity? He can't. So it's a prophecy of his resurrection. Numbered with transgressors, dead but now alive. God looked on him and saw his suffering and God was satisfied. And because God was satisfied, he let Jesus out of of the subterranean realms. He was raised again because the full price was paid. You ever play, you ever, anybody got a brother? Anybody have a brother? Like a real live brother. Anybody got a little brother? Well, me and my brother, we used to play this game called Mercy. You ever play Mercy? And we'd get our, put our, interlace our fingers together, and we'd say, you ready? One, two, three, go. And you try to bend their fingers back, right? And you bend them back until they, until they say what? Mercy. The, the unwritten big brother rule is you don't let off on the first mercy. <laughs> you make them squirm a little bit. Roll them fingers over, and I'd, I'd take my brother, I'd, I'd roll his hand over, and I'd crank it under, and Row! he'd say, Mercy, mercy, mercy. And once he'd said it about 125 times, I'd let him go. I'd be satisfied with his misery. I'd be satisfied and I'd let him go. Jesus Christ was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, Scripture says. It's a prophecy. He's going to be there a long time until God was satisfied with his suffering. But then when he was satisfied with his suffering, he comes out of the ground And he rises to heaven and sits on the eternal throne. And scripture says in Philippians 2 that God has given him a name which is above every name. And that at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ paying the full price for your sins so you could go into eternal glory. So you could be saved. God is satisfied. With Jesus' suffering. He was raised up. Satisfied with Christ. And because Jesus rose from the dead, you can be declared just before God by simply trusting in Jesus as your Savior. The full price has been paid. That song we sing sometimes, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Augustus' top lady, he wrote these words, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I have nothing to bring. Charles Spurgeon said that so many times in his sermons. A lady in his church wrote him a note and said, Mr. Spurgeon, we are well acquainted with the vaquidity of your hands. We know there's nothing there. Please stop saying it. (laughs) Nothing to bring, nothing to add to it. The full price has been paid. And my friends, right now, Jesus Christ, the risen Lamb of God, is sitting on the mercy seat in heaven. And Jesus 
is the only mediator between God and man who gave himself a ransom for all men. In his body on that throne are the wounds that testify to the reality of his suffering. He is the risen Christ in whom we must put our hope. It's the risen Christ who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Jesus is the Savior. He was delivered over to death to atone for our sins and raised from the dead for our justification. If Jesus be not raised, we are of all men most miserable. Because that means there is no hope. There is no salvation. There's nothing but life and death. And death with nothing to look forward to. But because Jesus has risen from the dead, we can enter into eternal rest in the last day. My friends, I'm afraid that some of you do not understand the gloriousness of Romans 4.25. And then, I'm afraid that some may just kind of be meh about the whole thing. Because I think sometimes we lose the wonder of it all. The wonder of redemption. We forget just how rotten we really are. We forget what, what we really deserve. And that's, and that's kind of how it goes with Christians sometimes. I mean, the Holy Spirit's working in us, making us over, making us new. And as we obey the Lord and serve the Lord, what does God rain down on us from heaven? Blessing. Blessings. He's, he's working in us. He's, he, we're his children. He kind of spoils us. And, and over time, you know, things just kind of, they get better. We, 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 we forget that we're just there by grace. We get kind of puffed up. And we lose the wonder of redemption. We forget that we're just sinners saved by grace. Well, there could be another cause for this. There could be another reason why you do not care a lick about a text like Romans 4.25 or about the gospel. It could be because you're not a Christian at all. It could be because you're not a Christian at all. How many of you folks are kind of... You can't, how many of you would say this? How many of you think deer hunting is a waste of time? Most of the wives raised their hands, <laughs> or, they, or they didn't, they didn't heart. <laughs> you know, all the deer hunters would say, if you could just know the thrill. If you could just know the thrill. If you could just experience buck fever one time. What about fishing? How many of you think fishing is just kind of silly? Yeah, nobody's going to raise their hand anymore. <laughs> Man, it, but I've tried to explain this to my kids because I've taken the kids fishing. You know, we haven't caught anything sometimes, most of the times. When I go by myself, I do pretty good because I use dynamite. <laughs> and so, what about the kids? I, gotta, I can't do it. So, I've been out there fishing. And I've, and I've wanted the kids, they're like, why, why are we doing this, Dad? Why are you casting and casting and casting? Why are you beating the water to a froth? What's going on here? 
And I say, if you could, and I, I want to say to him, if you could just experience the thrill one time of a largemouth bass powering up from the weeds, smacking that plastic worm, ripping that thing, ripping the pole out of your hand almost, and then just, and feel that line go taut, and feel that pressure on that rod, and feel it fighting against you, and just feel the thrill of seeing it come up through the water. If you could just see it one time, if you could experience what it's like to bring it to the boat and put your thumb in his mouth and and feel like kissing it. I've kissed many a bass. If you could just, I, I want to say that, if you could just experience that one time, man, you'd be, you'd be, a whole, you, you'd be an addict, right? And I, I kind of feel this way about Christians. If you could just feel the glory of redemption, if you could, when you come to know Jesus, it's a wonderful thing. It doesn't always feel wonderful at that, at that moment, but over time, there is a wonder, a gloriousness in it. We believe in experiential religion, and that means it's a religion you can feel. Feel. It's great to know you're saved, amen? But it's really great to feel you're a Christian, to feel saved, to feel saved. And I hope that you know Christ as your Savior. Let's read Romans 4.25. I'll read it to you. Then we're going to sing a song. We'll be done. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Let's pray together.